I had a lot of a lot of different things I was going to start out with this morning, so I think this is where we're going to go. So I have a question: Is it possible, do you think, to grow in confidence? Yes. In what? In what? Just say in general. Can you grow in confidence? Okay. Uh, what are in what ways would you say that you are more confident today than you were in the past? What are some things that you're like? You could say that compared to how I was a week ago, a year ago, (laughs) 10 years ago, whatever your past is. So grandparenting, is that because in the past you weren't a grandparent? (laughs) Experience grandparenting. What does that look like? How, how, how? Okay. If you go back like 10 years ago, I'm more confident in everything than I am. I mean, just, just pick one. Gluing and glittering? Oh, yeah. <laughs> For like cuts? Really good at that. You okay. <laughs> You don't need stitches, okay? Skin glue. It's probably cheaper. Probably cheaper. All right. What else? We got grandparents. We got skin glue. <laughs> Confident in your faith. We might talk more about that. Cut to the chase. Go to the chase. Just speaking to daily, so I took my kids on this big, long one-wheel ride yesterday. Oh, yeah, you're, yeah. Like, and I, I've ridden, but I, I rode more that day than I've ridden in six months. So I was like, this guy to the end of the day, I was getting way more confident than I did anything. So even in a day, experience that growth. So, so what are the things that lead you to more confidence? Repetition. Okay. Experience, practice, repetition. Pain, okay. Humility. What's that? Humility. Humility. Oh, they said ability. Okay. People telling you you're good at it. Okay. So, yeah, all these things can help us grow and become more confident. Um, what about? Can you grow less confident over time? Yes. Yeah. Okay. And how does that happen? What's that? Mistakes. I think more, what'd you say? Pain? What happened to every single teenager at some point? At some point, every single teenager became less confident. Okay. There were their peak of confidence, and then less confident, and then more confident. So. What's that? Fear. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And you see, that, you see that sometimes with athletes, right, after a major injury, right? Can they come back? Is it not just the rehab but also a mental factor as well? And so, uh, so yeah, so good. Good answers. Those are the answers I'm looking for. Well, uh, and why? Because we're going to see that, how it plays out um, in the passages we're going to look at. We're going to look at Hebrews 10 and 11. 
and more specifically at 11, but today we're just going to cover 10, which is a lot of verses, but I want to kind of do a big sweep because 10 leads into 11. I mean, 1 through 9 leads into 10, but we don't want to go that far. Um, so uh, last time, we finished up 1 Timothy 3, uh, meeting the needs of the local church. We saw that the church is to be united in preaching the truth of Christ, this wonderful mystery of, of who he is and what he's done to be protected by overseers, mostly men, and to be served by men and women who have various gifts and talents used to build up the body of Christ and identify not primarily by their ability, but by their character. Man, that's a sentence right there. So every week I have to give a sentence on, what's your, what was your passage about? You know, and so I was like, I'm good. I'm packing a lot in that one. Um, so, so that's again, first Timothy in, in the leadership in the church. And, uh, so there's a couple of chapters that kind of, you know, moving things around a little bit to kind of like package them together uh, as we're, we're getting closer to the end. So we're 46 out of 50. Um, so, but all good things come to an end, right? Um, so we will uh, be looking at 10 through 11 and then kind of looking at this idea of how we can grow more confident in our faith. And so we've, we've looked at like kind of what faith is and we'll look at that a little bit more next week um, as well. Uh, but particularly as we talked about faith and works, um, and when we looked at Galatians, it was kind of two ideas, but this idea of having faith, not only for salvation, but then what that faith is as we live out our faith here on this earth. And so, um, so let's start at the beginning of chapter 10, and I'm just going to break up because the author of Hebrews, um, you know, has some very dense, uh, dense material that we could spend a lot of time just unpacking things um, and going through them. Uh, some three seats right up the front here, if you want. So, <laughs> Hebrews chapter ten. Okay, so there, so there we are. <laughs> Yeah, First Timothy, go for it. So, <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. Uh, so I'm just going to kind of park, like, sometimes halfway in a paragraph. And if it makes you, like, you know, uncomfortable, then be more confident in that. So, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. All right, we're going to pause there. So hopefully everyone had their coffee, uh, you know, had some good conversation, already like get your brains like moving because this is like, you know, a theologian's dream, right? Man, like the stuff he talks about is so like, you know, packed chock full of uh, detail. But I want to just kind of pull back. So what's the, what's the point that he's making in these first few verses? Like, like kind of what's the, what's the first thing that he says about the law in verse 1 of chapter 10. Okay, it's only a shadow. Um, 
So it's only a shadow. Now he's just making this assertion. And so there's kind of this idea of where does he get that from? Um, and so there's a, a few verses that he, he makes the same statement, like in, in nine, chapter 9, verse 23, if you look back a little bit. He says, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. And he's talking about the, the priests and what they do, and Jesus being the, the, the high priest, the, the perfect high priest, um, is that uh, they, they do things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things are better, or sorry, the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So this idea of like, <clears throat> there exists uh, what, what the, the, the priests did in the Old Testament, as described in the Old Testament, and the Jewish rites were rituals, but they were actually things that pointed to something more significant. Paul says something similar in, uh, um, in Colossians 2.16. He says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are all Jewish practices. Verse 17, he says, These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So it's almost kind of this theological idea, right, that the things that are done on earth point to something greater and more significant. You can see why, like, why seminary students like love to dissect this stuff. Like, oh, what more? Um, but anyway, if you kind of think about, like, why did God do the things that he did? If you just step back and say, like, why, you know, why did God say a lamb? Why did he say a lamb? I don't know. What would be a good guess? What's that? Okay, so the, the type of the type of the animal is right, and one of the the things that we had in the in the in the flock. But then he kind of distinguished like the type of lamb, right, that would be sacrificed. What kind of lamb would be sacrificed? Perfect. Yeah, like a spotless lamb, right? So you've got like all the lambs, but then like every so often you can get a spotless lamb, and the, those lambs are the ones that can be drawn apart and pulled apart. If everything was spotless, then that would just be easy. But right, so something like you know, hey, a spotless lamb is kind of a special lamb, and so that's the one that you're going to sacrifice. And that special lamb is the one that's going to be sacrificed. And because blood was necessary, right, as part of the ritual. Well, why blood? We've got different verses that we could go to, and so we can go into more detail. And you say like, well, what about cleansing and kind of the purification and even like rinsing with water? Why that? Why, you know, uh, doing some of the things, uh, you know, the way that the tabernacle was set up and the way that the priests like, went through their rituals. You can just start asking the question, well, why is any of that? Well, you do those things, right, to point to something, like, greater. They're all symbolic for a particular reason, especially when we think the purpose of that is not just, like, what's the best way to kill an animal or what's the best way to, like, set up a church service, um, the, the whole point of that, right, was for uh, a forgiveness of sins, of a restoring a relationship with God. It, it all had to do with spiritual, but there were these physical things that were done. So he just makes a statement that the law, right, is a representation of something that exists uh, in another dimension. When I say dimension, right, we live physical, but God is spiritual, we will one day be with God in kind of that heavenly realm. It will be a physical realm. But this idea that when we are with God, that there is something that it's pointing to, and this is just a shadow of what we see. We'll get to the point of, of all of this in just a second. Um, 
Second, what's the thing about the substance that he, he makes the, the, the point kind of in the next, you know, end of, end of verse 1, kind of verse 2? Okay, yeah, so he makes a statement, right, he makes a statement that they are a shadow, and because they're a shadow, they can't really do anything. Just like, you know, you could play out in the sun and have your shadow cast on the ground and pretend it's like, you know, we would do these like play fights with my kids, you know, but I wasn't really hitting them, unless they happened to be standing there and I thought I was shadow punching them and, oops, sorry, um, you know, one of those things, uh, it was light. It was accident. So, um, well, you know, the, your shadow can't pick up anything. It can't do anything. It's not physical. It's just a shadow. And so that's kind of the point he's saying. So everything that, they, that was done didn't actually do anything, right? It wasn't like the killing of the lamb that took away the sins. What was it? What's that? Well, that's, that's true, too, and that's the third point that he makes, um, that it did have an effect only for a while. And you kind of even we made the point when we looked at Job, right, when Job got together with his family, like he continually made sacrifices for them, right? And why would that be necessary? Because they're always messing up. He's just always covering his bases, so we're just going to make sacrifices. And that's, again, the whole ritual system that was put in place, right? Um, so... Uh, so going back to the, the question that I asked, right, what was the sacrifices? The sacrifices weren't, couldn't do anything themselves. I guess we'll get to that in verse 4. Um, but there was something that did do something, and we'll talk about that in just a second. So third, right, because it's, it's a shadow and it's not substance, it's not really doing anything, and the law was put in place, right, it was temporal. And so, but it, it wasn't even effective in the sense that, like, when you are forgiven of your sins, you still didn't, it didn't make you forget your sins, right? There's a lasting effect that sin has. Even if you were forgiven, if I ask you the question, do you guys remember any sins that you've ever done? Okay, yeah, so. All of you are like, hmm, yes. How far back do I, there was that time when I was, you know, just thinking more recently, probably this morning. Um, so, right, you just don't forget those things. And so, like, there's this ineffectiveness of the law. Um, so he's, he, he makes the statement, right, uh, in verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Are you guys okay with that verse? Okay, good. I wrote a whole paper on this verse, so... <laughs> Why? Because I'll just, I'll just give you kind of this. Because why? Because in, in chapter 9, verse 22, he says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And you're like, wait, he just said, without blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But then he says, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So, what is there? Key word is the forgiveness part, Right? And it's really the blood, and the, the, the blood is not taking away your sins. It's a shadow. It's a symbol of something that happens. What does take away your sins? Or more so, who does take away your sins? 
Yeah. Well, the death of Christ, but in the Old Testament, it would have been the belief that doing this, you know, in the way that you want me to, Lord, you are using this blood to cover my sins and we are restored again. Although, as we said, it was temporal um, and it is just a shadow. Okay, this is going to set up some things that we're going to talk about. So keep moving forward. Verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So again, the purpose of the sacrificial system was not to kill animals, right? It was this obedience of the, what the people would do, and they would carry it out to the letter that God had intended, believing that doing so, God would remove their sin and would be restored with them. And he's quoting scripture to make his case, and he explains it next. So in verse 8 he says, When he said, Above, you've neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that, last, uh, that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. End result, no bulls or goats are necessary. No more killing of these animals. Christ is all that's needed. And so, making this statement right, again, with the emphasis on who Christ is and what Christ has done. Verse 15, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Okay, so what's he quoting right there? Or what's he referring to? Of this covenant that I will make with them. Okay, so this is the idea of the new covenant. And what was the new covenant promised? I mean, he says it right here. Okay, yeah, and so, and again, we've talked about this in the past, right, that with the new covenant, there was this, this promise, right, it, it was with the, the, the application of the law that it would be applied in a different manner, and so now the Holy Spirit uh, aids in this, and even says that the Holy Spirit confirms this, it's this confirmation that this is kind of where we're going to next, Verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, 
with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. You see the language that he's using. He's using very like ritualistic language that the priests would have gone through, but he's applying in a different way within the new covenant. And so, what does this new way to be forgiven lead to? What does he say in verse 19? Okay. Yeah, and so we're starting to see kind of these like new, these words kind of put in here, right? We have this confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. And since we have this great high priest, verse 22, he says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Right? And so this idea of confidence and assurance is what the author is saying is because of who Christ is and because of what Christ has done, because he is the real and not the shadow of these things that are in the past, we as believers have a greater confidence in what, um, how we can live our lives, how we can have, because what does he say this assurance or confidence is in? Or specifically, verse 22, this assurance of what? Faith. Okay, And he says that we will, verse 23, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who, is, who, who promised is faithful. All of this language that we hear here, 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 here um, speaks to something about the character of our belief. That idea of holding fast is to grasp tightly and to adhere firmly to. And it has the idea with convictions. What are the things that we are convicted with? And so he talks about what this confidence will result in in the next few verses. Verse 24, and he says, And let us consider how to stir one, one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses does uh, without mercy, uh, dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? So whereas the, the last few verses, he kind of talks about this confidence and assurance, right? What is, you know, what do we see this, this, he kind of looks like he turns kind of his attention to something else, but it leads directly into the purpose of our gathering together as believers. What is the purpose of our gathering together as believers? And I've asked this question before, but I want us to kind of think in the context of what we are reading about here. Why do we gather? Okay, to stir one another up to love and good deeds, okay? And so, what does, that, what does that look like, right? He says, you know, there's something that intensifies this need for gathering, for this gathering together, assembling together. Um, he mentions this at the end of verse 25. What is the focus, you know, that kind of even like increases why we would want to gather together? 
What's that? Okay. Encouraging each other, that's kind of what we do. But he says, all the more as what? What's that? Looking for the return of Christ. And he specifically talks about this day as the day draws near. So what is the day that he's referring to? Okay. And what happens at the day? If we think about it kind of in Old Testament language, we could describe it as the day of the Lord. And what happens at the day of the Lord? Yeah. We're going to talk about that more um, in a few weeks uh, and what that kind of looks like and kind of how everything, you know, will end. Um, but when we talk about kind of this idea of the day drawing near, it's this idea of judgment. Um, it's often this verse, you know, these verses can be used as a proof text, right, for going to church. Um, almost like every time, you know, I keep hearing, I've, I've heard it repeatedly, like, you know, the Holy Spirit is present when two or more people are gathered together, um, which I think we'll probably be going through soon in Matthew 18. Is the Holy Spirit here? If you're alone at home, is the Holy Spirit there? You know, there is something like corporately that you can say about that, and, and we'll kind of look at that idea. But sometimes it's almost like, well, when two of us are together, that like the Holy Spirit's like, I'm here. You know, I would say similarly, you know, when you look at this idea of um, consider, right, the gathering together or meeting together, that people are neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, um, that this says, you know, this says, well, this is really the reason why you should, you know, we should go to church. Now, this definitely supports this idea, um, but the real thrust is that we need each other, okay? And it goes beyond just kind of like the, the context as a Sunday morning gathering, um, it's a gathering of believers together. And judgment puts that in perspective. Judgment puts that in perspective in a couple ways. Um, one, persecution comes when judgment is coming. And so there's this idea of the fact that we need each other in that perspective. And we'll talk about that in just a little bit. But when judgment comes, there's also this idea, right, of the need for others to be to hear the gospel as well. And so this gathering together, whether it is in church, is our main function of how we do it. But whether it's in you know, a community group or a Bible study or whatever, that is important to our faith and our exhibition of our faith. Because there's kind of two aspects of what that looks like. And we're going to go you know, into that a little bit more. Um, I had a, a conversation with my kids. I think it actually was... Um, is anybody uh, lead a group uh, for Wednesday nights for the youth, like help help support? So uh, one of my sons was um, his teacher said, "I want you to ask him what is." I gave him a question for homework. My son didn't quite know the question, <laughs> something about legalism. So I was like, "All right, well, how about you just guys tell me what legalism is?" And we spent like 15 minutes, like kind of like dancing around. What is legalism? What would you guys say? Like, what's the what is a definition of what legalism is? Okay, so righteousness being attained by what we do. And what would you say like righteousness is? Because I kind of put it in more of like kid friendly terms. 
Doing good things for, for what benefit? Okay, so that's definitely true. Uh, and the heart of legalism, what's the, what's the damning part of legalism? Oh, wait, we got a whole lot of things going on. So <laughs> you, guys, you guys got sub points on main points. So. <laughs> well, it's the false understanding that we can be redeemed by our works. Yeah. And so, yeah, and so the way that I put it was that, that you doing anything that God desires for you to do will make you more loved in God's eyes. And so then it came a question like, doesn't God love everybody? And I was like, does he? But we're not going to get off topic there. So, <laughs> but it was like, it was like, and then one of my sons said, do you do this with your students or you just don't tell us the answer? And I was like, well, if I just told you the answer, probably like you just heard it three days ago in a, you know, youth group, you know, topic. It was like, you're just not going to think like, what is legalism? Right. So my daughter said that, I don't know, yesterday morning or last night, it was like, I really appreciated that talk. And I was like, oh, that's so sweet. So, <laughs> so what is legalism? <laughs> so because we kind of couch it in these terms, right, you know, of what, what does it mean to have faith and what does it mean to, to, to do things and live out our faith. And we spent a whole lot of time about that and kind of the angle that we're going to talk about, you know, that we'll get to and kind of flesh it out a little bit more is how do we grow in our faith? And what does that look like um, with some of these things? And so our need to gather together is to make sure, right, that we are reminded of the things that we need to be reminded of. And so I'll pull us all together in just a little bit. If I ask, like, what is the purpose, right, so we kind of what's the purpose of our church? And we can say to stir each other to love and good deeds, but it's a little bit more than that, right? Rooted in Christ, right, because it's not like we're a service organization just to kind of be like, we need to go clean up a highway somewhere, so good job, Wait, you know, all that. There's like a purpose, right? It's the purpose of, like, the day of judgment. So it is very, like, gospel-centered, and, it, you know, kind of crystallizes that that thought when we think, like, as the day of judgment draws near, like, <laughs> What we do is more important is is uh, is more important with that in mind. The thing about the day of judgment is every day gets us closer to the day of judgment. We don't know if that day of judgment is still if we if we said oh the day of judgment is a thousand years off, right? Like you know we might be more passive, but the fact that we don't know that. Again, that'll be that, that's going to come in in, a, in another another topic, another study that we're going to do in a little bit. So we we step back and said, what is our purpose as parents? What what, what how what would you say? Okay, great. Right, is a preparation, right? Because our children are going to go out from you know from from under our wings, right? So we want to grow them and give them confidence as they. Enter the world, right? If I said, what's my role as an educator? I'm saying is prepare my students, right, for the next step of their journey, whether it's like the next class they're going to take or college or career. And my goal is to really give them confidence that they can go and move on to the next step. So what does God desire for us while we're in this life is to live confidently in his purposes for us. You guys heard of, uh, you know, John Piper's Christian hedonism? 
Does anyone, does anyone know the, the, how, he, how he phrases? Have you heard, I guess, heard of that term, Christian hedonism? Yeah. Um, yeah. So kind of came on the scenes, made a big one. It was almost like kind of, kind of put in a way that like makes, you, makes you think. Because the idea of hedonism is very self-centered. But what is Christian hedonism? Uh, does anyone know how he put it? Right. And so the way that he would put it is that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And it makes you pause and think, is that selfish? Is that right? Is that, you know, but he's saying there is a, if your selfish focus is God alone, right, then that is the right focus and God is most pleased in that. And so anyway, there's a whole lot that you can kind of think about that. It's almost echoing what the the author of Hebrews is saying, right, is that there is this full assurance, this confidence that we have in the purposes that he has for us. That God wants us, yes, to grow in our sanctification, but but how does that happen? It happens as we grow more confidently in him. We would sometimes say like, uh, being more confident within the sovereignty of God and the purposes that He has for us, but whatever that whatever we see um, that He has for our lives, right? That we can be satisfied with that. And so we'll get to a little bit more on that in a second. So, how are those described who don't exhibit faith properly, or those who go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth? So he says, uh, verse 26, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, you know, and then he kind of like fleshes out like what, what is, what does it look like for them who hear the truth of God, but continue sinning deliberately, knowingly. What's that? Yeah. Yeah. And so under Moses, right, you know, the the sacrifices, like mercy was only extended so far. Um, and so there needs to be, though, repentance. And that was always the same, whether it's, you know, in the New Testament under Christ or in the Old Testament under the law, right? There always was the sons of Abraham, the true sons of Abraham, or those who were just sons of Abraham by blood. And so those who were the sons of Abraham through faith, right, they believed in the things that they did. And so the blood of those animals and the confidence that they had in God doing so took away those sins. But those who knew the truth but sinned deliberately after receiving the truth, right, he's saying that there is a consequence that kind of goes even further, right? Like what Christ did doesn't apply to you. And so he continues kind of talking about that in verse 30. He says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Verse 31, It is fearful, a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those 
so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. So we're going to pause there, right? So the author of Hebrews, he wants the reader to consider kind of two aspects of this deliberate, like, choosing to sin, right? So the context of this letter is to, you know, those that are being persecuted um, for their faith. The reason that it's titled to Hebrews, even though it, the audience or the recipients aren't necessarily, you know, mentioned as uh, Israelites or Jews or Hebrews, um, is that there's all of this language about Old Testament practices and how Christ is better. You know, referring to the priests, referring to certain practices, referring to angels, things like that. And so the temptation for those that are receiving the letter seems to be those that would compromise and um, perhaps like act more Jewish than, and, and less Christian, if we kind of put it, put it in those terms. And so this author is almost saying like they had a, had a confidence problem, right? So on, on the one hand, they're asked to consider those who reject Christ altogether are left to, to be in judgment. But he's saying for you, where does that leave you? He says, what should they be considering? You know, and he, he kind of gets them to think, you know, verses 33 through 34, what does he want them to think about? Or let's just say the, the beginning of verse 32. What does he say? Okay. So what do you think he's wanting him to, wanting them to, you know, what are the former days? Yeah. And he, he says, he points to specific things of like what their life looked like when they first came to faith. So you... So what did that look like? And then we'll kind of like paint the two contrasts in just, in just a second. What, what, what are the things that he describes happened to them? Okay. And specifically, like he kind of named some things. So, okay. Even, even what, what happened when they took away their property? They joyfully accepted it. Okay. There's a thing like it's almost like, Think back to when you were you first became a follower of Christ. There was a there was a confidence that you were given when you first became a follower of Christ um, that changes over time uh, as you get as you as you get a little bit older in your faith. So it's almost like thinking right like there's the one contrast of those who are destined to judgment. But when you come to Christ, you, you realize that is not your future, but your future is, is now eternity with God. So then when you are persecuted, it's almost like you're, you know, when we talked about, you know, teenagers having confidence, it's almost like that, right? That, you know, that they suffer these things, and even if people took away, like, what they had, they, 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 responded in joy, they were like, that's all right, you know, God's got me, 
But then over time, what happens? Your confidence kind of then gives away to what? Yeah. Like, you know, yeah, exactly. Like, your own, like, maybe I don't like this, right? Or you start looking at, like, what other people have. Or, you know, what other people have and you don't have. Or the burdens that you've been given that other people don't have to deal with, right? And then you, you kind of like the the singular focus that maybe you had when you first came to Christ then starts to get kind of clouded over time. And that's really what he's like pointing to these Christians about. Like it's almost like, and I don't know if he's, he's talking to them of the, because it, it echoes a lot of the things that happened to the early church in, um, in Acts, right? Where like people were thrown in prison and it was like, they like rejoiced that they were being thrown in prison for Christ's sake, right? If you get, if we get thrown in prison, like, you know, Probably not rejoice is the is the first the first step, but they knew they were onto something, right? When people were responding this way, like they had that perspective. But over time, right, the reason that this letter is written is because they have started to kind of grow a little bit weary and to lose that sight and perspective. And the whole letter is written to kind of like show them why Christ is better than all of these other things. We kind of touched on it a little bit when at the very end of last week, I had us look at Revelation uh, and the church in Ephesus, right? We talked about leadership and all that. But what was the issue? The issue wasn't, they had a doctrinal problem. What was the issue that, you know, so the church wasn't, wasn't really being, you know, you know uh, taken to task. It was this one thing, but it was kind of a big thing. What was that? They lost their first love. And the author of Hebrews is kind of saying that. I just, I want you to think about when you first came to Christ, which is a great perspective, you know, for all of us to have is to remember our former days, right? Um, what's that? Uh, I think you may have hit on it when you said something just a little earlier. You said grow weary. And it's like, I think over time you can kind of get worn down. And, and that's why I think you need to show for the encouragement stuff. Sort of, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it's like the difference between running a sprint or a marathon. You grow weary, you grow tired. You, you, you know, you want to, it, it's hard work, you know, to persevere. So, you, so in the beginning, you just feel that that new believer has not encountered just the new life in the world. Yeah, the trials, with, the trials, and, and okay. life and stuff. I, I think it just, I think, I think you can get worn down, and and that encouragement of fellow believers when we come together, and you know, you've got your brothers and sisters that are praying for you, encouraging you. I think it helps you persevere. Well, thank you, brother. That's why. That's, 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 that's my perspective.
Well, yeah, I'm going to say there's, there's two, there's probably two, you know, perspectives, kind of like everybody in the middle. And then I feel like being around those that are new in their faith is like exciting. Um, it's kind of weird. I'm not appearing in your spot, Joanna, but, uh, it was a kid's camp that, uh, I think I had to move someone's car and I think I moved your car, but anyway, it could have been someone in college group. <laughs> And she had, not, not, not the car thing, but she had like scripture verses or something, you know, on her dashboard. And I was like, I remember when I used to do that, right? <laughs> and I was just like encouraged by just seeing that, you know, because at some point in your life, you kind of just like, you know, kids and life and whatever, and you don't do some of those things. So it's like when you're early on and like you're energetic and excited, like at some point, like your excitement just changes. It becomes, it becomes like, uh, I wouldn't say hardened, but hardened for a good, good reason. But in some sense, like that hardening also like removes some of the, like the, like you become more steady, but you lose a little bit of like some of the excitement. Where do you, where do you, where does that pick up is when you're around like senior saints, right? When you're just like, man, there's this like confidence they have because as you, as you get closer, right? You know, as people start losing friends right to to old age and and just that there then becomes like more of a crystallized perspective of like eternity awaits me right so for a lot of us kind of in the middle you're still like well I've got time you know and it's almost like yeah as maybe Tom said is if you ever go running with you know (laughs) people who don't go running before it's like they start out of the gate sprinting and so they're all excited and at some point you're like you know we're going to be running for like 30 more minutes, you know, <laughs> and they like just drop off. Right. And so I feel like sometimes there's kind of that, like, you know, how do we steady ourselves for the race? But that's why we get together. Right. That's why we're supposed to encourage each other. Right. Why are you supposed to be in the word daily? Because we always need remem- reminders of these things, you know, of what God has done. He goes to there. This is kind of where our focus is going to be, you know, over however long it's going to take us to get through chapter 11. As a verse 37, he says, For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and uh, preserve their souls. So we're going to come back to, to verse 39 in chapter 11 and kind of look at all of that, right? But if we kind of just step back, we think like, you know, God is a God of purpose. And he cares about how we live. We know that, right? And so we think of, again, about our purpose in kind of the grand, grand scheme. How we live is important. And so we're motivated by two things to come back to our beginning. We're motivated if you just think of all humans, we're motivated by two things. We're motivated by fear, and we're motivated um, by confidence. So in other words, we move away from things that we fear, but we move towards the things that, uh, you know, towards something due to the confidence that we have. So when we are fearful, we move away from it. When we are confident, we move towards it. And so spiritually, God wants us to move away from sin and towards him. So away from the consequences, 
both you know, earthly and heavenly, and towards him, earthly blessings and heavenly rewards. And so the, the sacrificial system that was created right, was to remind people that sin is real and it must be dealt with. And that was a physical thing that they had to deal with by shedding blood. And uh, we kind of lose sight of that, you know, because we don't go through that ceremony anymore. But that's why we need the continual reminder about what Christ did for us in our sins and what awaits us in the future in heaven. And we even think about kind of living in just light of eternity and living in light of heaven. That should give us confidence. And there's like all these things that like make us fearful that really shouldn't make us fearful that, um, you know, God wants us to be confident in. And so we're going to, again, explore that a little bit more, that, you know, this faith in Christ's atoning work and the reminder, you know, from one another that we give of that atoning work will help us to grow in our faith more and more. And then the author of Hebrews gives examples, and we'll kind of look at how those examples kind of feed into what that looks like um, in the coming however weeks that it'll take us to get through chapter 11. But I wanted to set the stage with chapter 10, even though it was a little bit of like discourse on the law, but what was the purpose? But the purpose was to kind of think, look, how does that feed us in our understanding of the law? Um, but uh, we'll, grow, we'll get a little bit more into this again uh, soon. Are there any questions that you guys have?